G'day everyone, welcome to this week's edition of the Road Less Travelled Podcast. A big thanks to all of you who have dropped us an email at fatcat at iinet.net.au to give us some feedback on the course of the podcast, things that you'd like to see featured and just general feedback on how we've been going. Really appreciate it. Don't forget too that you can support the Road Less Travelled Podcast via Patreon and of course, now you can listen through Google Podcasts, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And we're now on iHeartRadio as well. So just search for the Road Less Travelled podcast with Fat Cat Media and you're good to go. And of course, you can follow us at Fat Cat Media on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube. Our previous adventures on the Road Less Travel have been predominantly in Western Western Australia and South Australia. So we focus this week's adventure on Lacola in Victoria, one of the most remote little alpine towns in Victoria, and it's gateway to world-class national parks and outdoor adventure. The town was once a sawmilling settlement and today has just one solitary shop where you can refuel and stock up on groceries and maps, etc. for your adventure. Lacola is located in the East Gippsland region of Victoria in Australia. To visit Lacola, you need to wind your way up through the mountains and the road that follows the McAllister River as it cuts its way through the McAllister Valley and around mountains. It's quite a substantial little steep pinch if you're towing a caravan, but some fantastic views across the high country. And that drive up to Lacola is absolutely amazing with its natural beauty in all directions. It makes it feel really untouched and unspoilt by today's modern society. And that drive is just so very popular with road motorbikes as well with the twists and turns of the road leases. Along the way up, you see plenty of four-wheel drive tracks leading off the main road in both directions. You drive over the Shane's Bridge, which is a popular base for motorbike riders who tackle the bushland tracks around the area. It's also a little popular uh, camping spot as well. Along the way, there's numerous places to stop and admire the view of this amazing high country area of Gippsland. It's absolutely fantastic. The township of Lacola, well, it lies on the banks beside the McAllister River, which is uh, about 254 kilometres east of Melbourne is Lacola. The township is owned entirely by the Lions Club of Victoria and Southern New South Wales, And it's the only privately owned town in Victoria and the only one not on mains power. They supply their own power themselves. The road into Lacola splits in two at the old wooden bridge on the edge of town. And if you cross the bridge, you head straight into Lacola itself and onto the Jamison-Lacola road, which runs through the township and heads north to Jamison at the foot of Mount Buller. Uh, That road is actually closed in winter due to snow. If you turn right before the bridge, you can follow the Tamboretha Road and the river further into the high country itself. As I said, the township of Lacola generates its own power. It pumps and treats its own water and is responsible for its own waste management is as well. As I said, a very small town with one shop, a couple of small houses, a caravan park and the Lions Club line uh, Lacola Wilderness Village that caters for school camp groups and other organisations. The Lacola General Store is the only place to get petrol within about a 60 kilometre radius. Be prepared and fill up before you leave home. The shop sells quite a range of general supplies, ice creams, coffee, pies, alcohol and food. The Lacola Wilderness Village is mainly a place for camp groups that come from schools, etc., underprivileged kids and special needs group. But in saying that, you can also book yourself a single cabin house. Each little house is self-contained. This village has activities such as canoeing, abseiling, archery and all those kind of exciting things. 
We've stayed many times at La Cola Caravan Park and it provides some uh, great little camping opportunities right in the heart of the town. And it's got powered and unpowered sites for caravans and tents, cabins and bunkhouses for up to eight people. And some cabins contain a little ensuite while others will need to access the toilet box. Uh, cabins and bunkhouses, of course, containing catering facilities. There's also a great barbecue area on the side of the river with electric barbecues and information signs about the region. The information signs tell you about surrounding attractions such as Lake Tali Khan, uh, the various wildlife that inhabit, inhabits the region, the walking trails and more. And it's just a great spot to teach the kids all about the joys of fishing as well, while you can jump on the barbecue and uh, put the steak and sausages on, cook away. Now I should mention too that once you get into La Cola, there is no mobile phone reception so no internet, no mobile phones. Pretty good, actually. Now, La Cola, the, the area of La Cola, as I said earlier, the gateway to the Victoria High Country, and many hunters and shooters frequent this area tracking deer. The four-wheel drive tracks litter the land, shooting off the main road, as I said, in very various directions are very, very popular with a lot of local four-wheel drivers. Two popular La Cola camping spots are the Barkley River camping spot and the Wild Cherry Tree campsite. There are 13 numbered campsites on the Tamboretha Road north of the Lakola Township. These maintained sites have facilities such as toilets, fireplaces and picnic tables. And when I say toilets, so pretty well shaded and provide campers with easy access to the river, bearing in mind, of course, at popular times they will be absolutely chock-a-block. In the winter, snow can be accessed beyond the beautiful mountain township as you climb higher into the mountains. There are no resorts located, but fun access to snow in the wilderness is possible, such as a uh, you can go beyond the snow in La Cola, hiring a toboggan or just jumping on a bit of tarp and flying down the hills between the trees, free as a bird. As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, it's a popular destination for four-wheel drivers and one of the most popular in Victoria. And it's a narrow ridge-top tracks and tight switchbacks make for white-knuckled thrills when you do a four-wheel drive trip to the Wanagata Station. The dirt tracks tour through secluded and abandoned villages with epic views of the Wanagata Valley, the Alps, and even the distant Gippsland Lakes on a clear day. The unique track lets your imagination wild, run wild when you pass the country's most popular camping areas. It's located within the Alpine National Park and it's a 222km return trip, so allow two to three days to do it. And the start-finish area you can access points including the Cola from the south and Dargo from the east. It's a very difficult track. It's not accessible during the seasonal road closure period, which is June to November. You can do it through the King Billy Track Zika Spur Track Junction to Grant, which is 81Ks. Grant to Horse Yard Flat is 75Ks and Horse Yard Flat to Mansfield is an additional 66 kilometres. So as I said, be well prepared for it. Um, it is a fantastic adventure if you get the opportunity to, to do it. Bearing in mind, as I said, peak holiday times, it's quite busy out through there, so just keep that in mind. I was going to leave it for another podcast, but bugger it, while we're on the subject of Wan and Gatta, we'll actually delve into the Wan and Gatta mystery murders, murder mysteries. Do we finally know who did it? Well, who knows? It's still unsolved. It's one of uh, Victoria High Country's, uh, one of them, and they have many hidden dark secrets. A hundred years after the crime was committed, do we actually finally know the identity of who committed the unsolved murders of Wanagata Station? Fans of the film The Man from Snowy River will recognise the quote, It's a hard country, makes for hard men, which was spoken by the lovable rascal Spur. 
Well, back then, when fewer words rang true in the Victorian mountains, it was hard country. Those who lived there and crafted a living out of the mountains, they did it hard, there's no doubt about that. And you can only imagine how difficult life was for those early Australian pioneers. Bitterly cold winters, followed by scorching hot summers, both bringing with them the risk of ruin or worse, death. And as if Mother Nature was not enough to contend with, throw a cold-blooded killer into the mix and things become very interesting. One of the more intriguing stories of the high country from the early 1900s is that of the Wannangatta murders. And I guess the reason this this murder mystery has captured the imagination of so many is pretty simple. It's the case that was never solved. And there's plenty of theories as to the identity of the murder or murderers, but that's how they will remain, mainly theories. It was late December 1917. Wannangatta station manager Dim Jim Barclay and his cook farmhand was John Bamford. They were both seen alive for the last time. They had travelled some 20 miles from the station to the small town of Talbotville to vote in the conscription referendum for the First World War. It isn't known which way the men voted, but it's widely accepted that they agreed on the issue. Albert Stout was the shopkeeper at Talbotville. It previously warned Jim Barclay that John Bamford possessed a wicked temper. The true reason behind Bamford's employment is unknown, but with World War I raging, there would have been a very severe lack of suitable labour. Barclay and Bamford had only worked together for a couple of months before the first body was discovered. It was the 22nd of January 1918 when Harry Smith, who was the neighbour and good friend of Jim Barclay, visited Wanagata Station to deliver the mail. He found the homestead empty, but the words home tonight were written on the kitchen door in chalk. Smith stayed at the station for two nights, but neither Barclay nor Bamford returned. Smith returned to Wanagata on the 14th of February. He found the mail still sitting on the table exactly how he had left it. This time, though, Barclay's favourite dog, Baron, was there, starved and visibly neglected. Immediately, Smith knew something was wrong. After briefly searching the station again, he stayed the night and rode to Dargo the following morning to raise the alarm. Arthur Phillips, the owner of Wanangatta Station, and his stockman, Jack Jeb, arrived on the 23rd of February. Along with Harry Smith, the pair conducted a prolonged search of the station. Barclay's body was finally discovered in a shallow grave along the banks of the river, about 420 paces from the homestead. He was found half-buried. Presumably the shallow grave had been disturbed by dingoes or foxes. The police conducted a post-mortem. The results showed us to the back. Interestingly, Barclay's own shotgun was still in the house, had recently been fired. Along with the shotgun wound, Barclay was also found to have had facial injuries, possibly pointing to a fight prior to the shooting. With no sign of Bamford, he became the detective's main suspect. A manhunt began. The government even offered a reward of £200 for any information on the Wannangatta murderer. However, it wasn't until nearly a year later, in November 1918, that the police finally found John Bamford. And unfortunately, he wasn't much help with the investigation, because he was found dead. His body was half buried under a pile of logs not far from Howard Hut, about 14 miles ride from Wannangatta Station. The post-mortem examination showed the cause of death to be single gunshots. The case wasn't solved doesn't mean that there are some pretty good theories around the Wannangatta murders. 
A popular theory is that cattle thieves murdered the two men. Sid and Jack Beveridge, two brothers who owned a nearby station in the region, are thought to have come, become very wealthy off the back of cattle theft. The theory goes that Jim Barclay discovered the theft and the brothers murdered him to cover it up. They also murdered Bamford to leave no witness to the crime. Now, while this theory does have some weight, there is little real evidence to back it up. And according to police reports, there was no livestock missing from the Wanagata station. The records show detectives never questioned the brothers. There's another theory is that Barclay had a reputation as a ladies' man, and perhaps he had had an affair with the wrong man's wife. His murder was simply the retribution of her jilted husband. Again, poor John Bamford was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. Personally, Bamford's murder makes this theory, this theory sound unlikely. If he wasn't at one in Gatta when Barclay was killed, why bother killing him? He wasn't witness to anything from Howard Hunt. There is zero evidence to back this theory up, plus when you consider how isolated the, the Wanangatta region is, it's not exactly plausible that Barclay could easily sneak away to seduce another man's wife. Many locals of the region subscribe to the last theory, but it's also one that the police detectives favoured, good old-fashioned old bush justice. The theory, this theory goes that Jim Barclay and John Bamford got into an argument Things got heated and a scuffle broke out. There was evidence actually found at the house pointing to a state of disorder. Following the altercation, Bamford shot Barclay in the back with his own shotgun. He then saddled up his horse and dragged Barclay's body to the river, where he could quickly bury him in the sandy banks, and then he abandoned the station. A friend of Barclay's, the most likely of whom would have been Harry Smith, discovers the body and sets out to track down Bamford. Catching up to him around the Howard Plains, he shoots and kills Bamford with his sign arm. So who really did it? Well, as I said earlier, we'll never likely find the truth about the Wanangatta murders. Those that do know have kept the secret for many years and have obviously taken it to the grave. However, in the late 1970s, Barclay's son Jim Jr., who worked on Harry Smith's farm for many years, was interviewed about the murders. His intriguing comment may have given the biggest insight of all. He said simply, it was a long time ago and both the murderers are long since dead. I can't see that anything can be, can be gained now. It's all best forgotten. You can draw your own conclusions, but I find his choice of words pretty curious. Both the Wanagata murderers, are, murderers rather, are long since dead. If Harry Smith had claimed Bush justice for his murdered friend, he might have just felt compelled to disclose this secret to Barclay's son. Personally, I'd love the case... I love that the case was never solved. Some mysteries are best left unknown. It certainly makes for a better story and a good story around the campfire. There's a few books that have been written, and you can jump onto YouTube as well for some documentaries that have uh, been um, put out regarding the 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 murders, the unsolved murders of the Wanangatta station. Wedge between the foothills of the Victorian Alps and the majestic Alpine National Park, Dargo is an unpretentious town bursting with rustic charm. Surrounded by forested hills, boulder-studded mountains and see-it-to-believe-it views, Dargo is a base for innumerable high-country adventures by, four, by, force, by foot, by horse, raft or four by four. One of the most remote communities in Victoria, there's space to breathe here. It truly feels well and truly away from it all. If you have the opportunity, jump out to Dargo. It's famed for its walnut production. As you drive into town, you'll see avenues of leafy giants lining the valley floor. Next is the unmissable red tin roof of the iconic Dargo Hotel, where you 
where your active pursuits can be rewarded indeed with a cold run. You can take a peek back into yesteryear at the Dargo General Store, whose foundations were brought down from Talbotville, the ghost town I just mentioned. For almost 100 years, this fossil of high country settlement has provided the unique Dargo branded gifts, goods from quality handmade leather, clothing and homewares, as well as maps and snacks of the area. Not snacks of the area, but maps. The Dargo Heritage Museum is open by request and it displays artefacts and photographs that trace the town's early pioneering days through gold era heritage to high country cattlemen. And you can get your man from Snowy River on here and explore Victoria's high country on horseback with the Coonawarra trail rides. And you can also head to Den of Nargan, which is one of the sites of significance on the Balalak Cultural Trail. Aboriginal legend holds that the evil Nargan, half man, half stone, lived in the sacred cave, taking young children who wandered too far from the camp. You need, to, you need to, of course, show your respect in this special place by not entering the cave. So there's plenty to see. Um, Billy Goat Bruff for four-wheel driving. You can also do the Grant to Crooked River four-wheel drive. And there's plenty to do if you're into four-wheel drive. But uh, getting back to Lacole, it's just a, a, even in the caravan park, it's great, great just to sit back and relax and just enjoy nature. As I said earlier, there's no mobile phone coverage, there's no internet coverage, so you're basically back with nature. And from Lacole, you can take the drive out to Jamison on the Lacole at Jamison Road. And as when you, as when you drive from um, Lake Glen Maggie out to Lacole itself, the views are absolutely fantastic. Well, driving from Lacola over the high country road to Jamison is one of the best trips you can do. Um, if you want to then go on to Woods Point uh, for a full 91Ks, which is about a four and a half to five hour drive, it's quite a large drive. And um, we did it in, when did we do it? The long, well, no, we did it in Easter. Um, and then there was plenty of four-wheel drivers out, obviously, with the COVID lockdowns and so forth. Make sure you check that you're okay to go out there. Um, it is closed due to snow snowfalls from the first weekend in June to the first weekend in November. So make sure you just be careful as well. A couple of trees down along the way. And um, you just need to make sure that you're aware of road conditions. The road is unsealed for most of the route to Jamison, um, but you still find... Uh, regular cars going along when we went out there it was terribly rough the um the road hadn't been graded for ages and you just need to make sure you've got plenty of ground clearance you can do it but it is a bit of a bone shaker there is free camping available along the way not far from mount Skeen, and numerous walking trails that can be seen heading off at various points make sure you collect a map and walking notes if you're intending to do any hikes up there mount Skeen is the highest point on this drive at 1570 meters we stopped here for a picnic and a, there's a little wooden table there that's savage, been savaged by the bushfires and the vandals, unfortunately. Um, but uh, it's awesome to have a look there. You can um, also check out the views. You, one of those places where you just stop and there's just rows and rows and rows of mountains. The views across the high country are absolutely superb from this vantage point. It's sad to, to still see some of the scarring of the dead trees from the fires, but it's amazing to see how the forests regenerate. And then you can check out in, in this time of year, in sort of winter, you can look at Mount Buller in the distance, and uh, it's just fantastic. Jamison is a classic little town by the Goulburn River with a caravan and camping park and a number of little B&Bs. There's no supermarket, but a small store sells provisions, and the petrol station has a few odds and ends for camping, as well as fuel and a very friendly uh, group of guys at the uh, Jamison petrol station where we went through. And, of course, Jamison, well-renowned for the gold discovery 
back in the 1800s. So that's why uh, Jamison was sort of uh, discovered on gold. Speaking of gold, if you head from Jamison up to Woods Point, it's probably one of my favourite drives. Uh, dirt road all the way, but the scenery is just absolutely fantastic. It's a classic step back in time, and it hasn't suffered, that being Woods Point, hasn't suffered the indignity of being spruced up for tourists. Relics of the, uh, of the gold mining boom in the area during those 1800s, plus somewhat ramshackle old miners' cottages and an unpretentious aura make this drive just such a delight. It's one of my favourites. I love it. If you have the opportunity, make sure that you, you do do it because it's absolutely brilliant. Woods Point began with a general store built by Henry Wood to service the miners along the Morning Star Reef. The post office that still operates today opened in December 1862. Three years after the discovery of the Gold Reef, Woods Point had become a thriving town with 36 hotels. Now, mining declined during the 1870s to 1890s and the population dwindled. Much of the little town had to be rebuilt following the devastating bushfires in 1939 and um, the Morning Star Mine continued operations until its closure in 1963. In 2011, saw the reopening of the Morning Star Mine and it's just a, just a great little town, Woods Point. You can have plenty of camping available. There's a campsite close to town, free to camp with toilet facilities available too. And the local Woods Point Hotel has some some accommodation and meals, plus a few little B&Bs operate during seasonal conditions as well. When you head out of Woods Point, we stopped by plenty of little small waterfalls and filled our, our bottles with the chilled mountain water. It's just great to see these little waterfalls just popping out the side. Uh, from Woods Point to Marysville, it's about, I'd say, allow about an hour's drive again, dirt road, um, subject to snow during winter. Uh, it's the junction where you can drive towards New G and West Gippsland or continue on towards Marysville, Warburton Junction. When you head on to Marysville, simply because it's um, a beautiful part of the world, Marysville. If heading to Melbourne, it's roughly the same distance whether driving via Warburton to Me or Marysville. If you want to see both towns and drive on to Marysville and continue towards Melbourne, the turn off on the Akron Road, which will take you through to Warburton. The drive down into Maryville, Marysville rather, looks almost surreal in places as the devastation from the Black Saturday 2009 fires can still seal, clearly be seen. There's just thousands upon thousands of dead trees, but with so much new growth too. Marysville was one of the most affected areas during the fires with a tragic loss of many lives. It's a pretty little town, Marysville. Stop a while, make sure you do stop and maybe stay overnight at a little B&B or the local campground. You can eat out in the town or make use of the free barbecues by the playground. And a short drive out of town and onto the Stevenson's Falls. So it's a lovely little place too. And the Stevenson's Falls are actually lit up at night too. So make sure that you head out and support these little towns who have done it very, very hard during, of course, the various COVID lockdowns. So make it a destination of choice to head out and support these little country towns. Um, it's just absolutely magnificent. We'll do our best to bring you little stories of these places. And next week's episode, we might delve a little bit deeper into some stories surrounding uh, Jamison, Woods Point, Marysville and Lacola. That's it for this week's edition of The Road Less Travel. Thanks so much for your company. I look forward to seeing you somewhere on The Road Less Travel. Bye for now.